Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunn. I'm a columnist with the Iron Newspaper and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. This week, we are telling the story of climate denial. A peculiar phrase in some ways, because, of course, it's not about denying that there is such a thing as the climate. (laughs) But that is the phrase, rather than climate change denial, global warming denial, or whatever. Now, this is another two-parter, because we got so carried away and, frankly, cross (laughs) with the pseudoscientific mumbo-jumbo, and that we realised it was actually a much bigger issue than just climate denial. Do you think there's a point where any time that we work ourselves into a state of frenzied righteous indignation, it's going to have to be a double, maybe even a triple length episode where we just sit here shouting the bastards, the bastards over and over again? Ian, I wanted to do this because I'd come across it while I was writing my book. There's a section on apocalyptic climate scenarios. And I was really fascinated by the mechanisms behind denial, the sort of industry of denial. Mm -hmm. What about you? What what intrigued you? It sort of feels like part of the origin story of the sort of right-wing culture war, that you can take this stuff and just transplant it to any number of debates. You can look at it sort of with Brexit. You can look at the way that sort of Trump talks about things in the US, sort of denial of science and attack on science in many cases. I feel like we need a special word for not sort of conspiracy theory with big caps up, but the the level just below that where your whole worldview is sort of quite conspiratorial. Oh, oh, yeah. there's, there's these guys in the establishments and the institutions and, you know, they're trying to stitch up Boris Johnson or they're trying to stitch up Brexit. This is just absolutely soaked in that kind of Mentality. I think they are conspiracy theories. We've been hearing recently about, you know, the blob. Mm-hmm. It's literally inventing like a kind of sci-fi yes. supervillain. Yeah, yeah. Into which, of course, you can shove anything that you yeah. don't like. Now, some people, and not just deniers, prefer terms climate skeptics, climate contrarians. And, and you once said that you were wary of the word denial because to you it suggested, echoed, Holocaust denial. Yeah, I disagree with that. Do you still think that, having done the research? Yeah, I do. Let me put it this way. First of all, let's tackle their chosen phrase, climate sceptic, right? They do not get to use the word scepticism because what they're doing is not scepticism. No. Scepticism is what the scientists do. When you actually approach something, you know, with some respectability and you say, right, we're going to have it peer-reviewed, we're going to acknowledge the doubt, that's proper science, that's what it is to be sceptical. Therefore, when you come to an overwhelming conclusion, it's all the more powerful because you've checked your own arse. That is not what these guys are doing. They're they're going with a political agenda and everything has to fit around it. So it's not scepticism. You can also, I think, make a case for the word denial, just to say, look, when there is overwhelming evidence of something and you are choosing to try and sow doubt about it, that is equivalent to the process that Holocaust deniers have done. Mm. And I think so objectively and rationally, and in terms of the accuracy of the word, fine, 
But that is not, I think, how politics really operates. With politics, words have a certain emotional resonance by their connection with things. So take, there's a certain point in this story where one of the climate deniers, and I'm going to use the phrase climate denier, even though I don't like it during this podcast, because that's what we're doing. Fred Singer accuses a guy, Ben Santa, a scientist, of scientific cleansing, right? Now, that sounds awful. You could see that he could make the case for how you could use that. But obviously, the word cleansing has that association. And I feel that with denial, because so much of our life is wrapped up in it being part of the Holocaust, being attached to the word Holocaust, that I would rather use stuff like sort of dissenters or rejectionists or something that feels less valuable. See, dissenter sounds quite noble. <laughs> like that plays in, we'll talk about this, and this really plays into their sort of, their self-image, sort of heroic mm. mavericks being silenced by the establishment. <laughs> to be honest, I never connected climate denial to Holocaust denial. Really? Yeah, I just think the word denial has got many, many meanings. I, ne- I did, did ne- definitely never thought that it was pegged to the Holocaust. Here's the OED. Climate denial, noun, rejection of the idea, in brackets, or the evidence, that climate change caused by human activity is occurring, or that it represents a significant threat to human and environmental welfare. First citation, 1996, from the Star Phoenix, Canadian newspaper, petrodollars likely fuel behind climate denial, which... Yes, very likely. <laughs> it turns I mean, out that's absolutely true. 100% likely. <laughs> and I think this is an important ambiguity because there's a, there's a couple of ores in here. And the thing that's being denied changes. Is some say it's not happening at all. Some say it's happening, but it's not man-made. Mm. Some say it's man-made, but actually it's not a big deal and we shouldn't do anything about mm. it. But the goal is always the same, to prevent political action. Exactly. The arguments, they come and they go. And it's interesting, it's not a clear historical arc at all. So at various times, they almost sort of read the room and they adapt the argument, but they're always trying to come to the same conclusion. It's like, for God's sake, let's not reduce carbon emissions. The whole story of it tracks precisely and and occasionally with many of the same, literally the same people, the war sort of against the science on the harm from tobacco. And in both cases, you get the sense of this rearguard defense of just like, you're constantly retreating in the face of growing acceptance of the science and you establish a new base. Go, fine, it's happening. But it's not because of humans, you know, and then you have to move back yeah. to a further retreat. So it, it does always feel like a retreat taking the very long view, but it probably wouldn't if you're a scientist, say in the mid nineties, where it feels like actually they're doing significant damage to action against climate change. Now I like this one because we don't, unlike say with Churchill, we don't have to pretend we don't have to be, to be balanced. Even, we don't have to be even-handed, you know. Um, they are just wrong-uns. <laughs> they're just uh, bastards. Like, if that's a spoiler for anyone yeah. listening, it's like, there really is very little to defend. But it's bigger than climate denial. It, it's, so it's, we, we get into, it's a really good yarn, I think. We get into mm. right-wing think tanks, the failure of the media, the politicization of science, political polarization in the US, and conspiracy theory. And I think the political effect of capitalism. There's a really fundamental story to be told there about just the way that if your political view is to preserve the way that industry works at the moment, you will find yourself very well funded compared to those who want to change the way that industry works at the moment, whether it's tobacco or whether it's sort of energy. And and there's a real sort of democratic and free speech and political conclusion to come to there that is actually quite a radical one, but quite a hard one to escape. Now, very late in the uh, in the process, I actually found out just an amazing expression of climate denial from the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax. <laughs> what is this new tendency you have to just bring out the weirdest fucking quotes this at the is beginning not, this of the program? Is a, this is a very big, <laughs> this is the first environmental book for children, basically. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure if you've, you've, oh, wow, you've, okay. you've read it. But basically, there's a wonderful uh, you know land with lots of these trees. I can't remember what the trees are called. And this character turns up called the Wantsler. 
who decides to cut down all the trees and turn them into sneeds, which are things that nobody needs, but he convinces everybody <laughs> that they do need them until eventually the entire land is a factory for making sneeds until all the trees are cut down and then the factory just fucks off and leaves everything dead. So the guy who is sort of the, the spirit of the environment is, is the Lorax, who uh, looks like Wilford Brimley from Cocoon <laughs> in a weird way. What um, the fuck? He's just this sort of lovable kind of fur mustachioed <laughs> yellow creature. Anyway, so the Wansler, this is the Wansler goes, I yelled at the Lorax. Now listen here, Dad. All you do is yap, yap and say, bad, 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 bad. <laughs> well, I have my rights, sir. And I'm telling you, I intend to go on doing just what I do. <laughs> Which is essentially uh, capitalism. <laughs> well done, Dr. Seuss. So, Ian, I'm not going to start at the beginning this time. You'll start at a real kind of hinge point. Now, we've cunningly scheduled this episode to follow nuclear war. Mm. But it follows on for that mm-hmm. in some ways. Now, yeah. for listeners who have missed that one uh, for some unforgivable reason. Unacceptable. In 1983, there was a massive row about the future of nuclear weapons. On one side, Ronald Reagan and the Hawks wanted the so-called Star Wars missile defense system. On the other... Doves embraced the new theory of nuclear winter, which is that nuclear war would create so much atmospheric debris that it would cause climatic catastrophe, destroy Mm -hmm. the food chain, and so on and so on. Now, the nuclear winter people said that Star Wars was scientifically impossible. The Star Wars people said that nuclear winter was hysterical nonsense. (laughs) And it really quickly became a political argument as well as a scientific one. And one result of this was that in 1984, three pro-Star Wars physicists, Frederick Seitz, who had worked on the atomic bomb, Robert Jastrow and Bill Nirenberg set up a think tank called the George C. Marshall Institute to promote an extremely hawkish defense policy. That was their priority. But then 1988, as Reagan was leaving office, Cold War was winding down. They turned their attention to global warming, which they initially claimed was caused by solar radiation rather than carbon (laughs) emissions. So almost the, the, the roots of denial are in another political project, a Cold War project. You see the precise techniques that we've been looking at against climate change sort of policy for decades. You see the attack on the media and, and really this, this use of balance to ensure that a scientific debate where it is not even handed, you know, a view that is based on peer review and extensive testing is not the same as one that has not gone through that process or would fail if it did. You know, there is a question of validity and the media are very liable to be hacked by people who are just trying to get a voice on without having done any of the scientific rigor. There's a letter. This In 1986, public TV stations were going to show a program on Star Wars that the Institute considered one-sided. The board of directors wrote to them, warning the managers of these stations by airing the UCS program could incur obligations under the Fairness Doctrine to provide airtime for presentation of contrasting viewpoints. Yeah. And you just think, oh, wow, so they hacked you. They did exactly the thing that we've seen over and over. And in the end, very few of those stations aired the program. But I think that you could have a legitimate political argument about Star Wars. Of course. You could even have one about nuclear winter, that the science was settled after a while, but it wasn't settled in 1984. Mm-hmm. Climate is such a strange example on on, the, on that basis, on the sort of both sides basis, because there is such consensus. And this has evolved over a very long time. These were, Star Wars and Nuclear Winter were things that literally appeared in 1983, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. This is stuff that, that goes back to 
the 19th century. So I'm going to do like a very brief mm. history just so we, we understand uh, the science here. So science of the greenhouse effect, which I'm sure I don't need to explain, right? No, sure. <laughs> Wait, That's just a great question. was established in the 19th century, but there wasn't the technology to measure carbon emissions until after the war. And there were lots of reasons for skepticism. People thought, well, look, you know, the oceans will absorb all the carbon. There's no evidence of, you know, warming yet. In 1957, two scientists, Roger Revelle and Hans West, published a landmark paper says mankind is engaged in an unprecedented large-scale geophysical experiment. And it's in news coverage of that paper where we first see the phrases global warming and climate change. Ravel, who's an oceanographer, helps a geochemist called Charles David Keeling establish carbon measuring stations in Hawaii and Antarctica. In 1960, Keeling publishes his first set of data in a graph that becomes known as the Keeling curve. It's mm-hmm. not a curve, it's mm-hmm. a jagged upward line. But it was the first kind of hard evidence from these measurements that the temperature was rising. Um, now, Ravel actually taught the Keeling curve in a class at Harvard, and one of his students was Al Gore, mm-hmm. which is how he became alerted mm-hmm. to environmentalism. Now, this is sort of, it's not consuming the public's imagination, but it is accepted in politics. So in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson commissions Ravel to chair a study of the impact of warming on ice shelves and sea levels. And Johnson tells Congress, this generation has altered the composition of the atmosphere on a global scale through a steady increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. It is extraordinary how far back this stuff goes. Because you think of it as a, this is something we discovered sometime in the, yeah, yeah. and we did certain things, especially the human fingerprint. That takes until the 90s, really. But just the idea that there was general cross-party acceptance and recognition of this process in the 1960s, I found completely shocking when I looked at this. Now, the politics of environmentalism generally in the 60s are really interesting because global warming is way down the list. After pollution, acid rain, right. and so on. The environmental movement really kicks off. I mean, there are books before now, but it starts in 1962 with the publication of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which is a really effective book on, on two levels because she specifically describes the environmental effect of pesticides, specifically DDT. But she weaves that into a bigger story about a word that she popularizes, the ecology. Huh. So it's, got, it's, it's precise, but it's also very broad. Right has a huge impact, even though the pesticide industry accuses of being hysterical, unscientific. There's a quote here, a fanatical defender of the cult of the balance of nature. (laughs) It's a sensation, creates political will for environmental regulation, including banning DDT. Now, Carson is very smart because she knows that you need to tell a good story. You need images, you need anecdotes, you don't just need data. And can't remember the oil company, but they, they provided an amazingly potent image in 1969 with a massive oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara. And it totally freaked people out. And one of the people who was freaked out was Senator Gaylord Nelson, who launched Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970. Now, it's hard to imagine how big this was. Around 20 million Americans participated in Earth Day, protests, teaching, and so on. And it's a cross-party affair. So in 1970, one professor says that not since Pearl Harbor had a single issue had so much media coverage in such a short space of time, between 1965 and 1970, the number of voters who prioritised the environment shot up from 17% to 53%. So it was below highway safety and then went second only to crime. Mm-hmm. 
And the New York Times said about Earth Day, conservatives were for it, liberals were for it, Democrats, Republicans, and independents were for it. No man in public office could be against it. <laughs> and one of the people who was very for it was President Richard Nixon. <laughs> Problematic in some ways, people, <laughs> liberals will tell you. But a, a really green president, he's the guy that forms the Environmental Protection Agency, signs a, a raft of legislation, clean up air and rivers and so on. Here's another thing that amazed me. The Clean Air Act passed the House of Representatives by 374 to 1. Wow. And the Senate by 73 to 0. Fuck. You know, it's incredible. You couldn't conceive of any piece of legislation <laughs> that would pass in the US right now. Even if it was like legislation against the arrival of Satan, yeah, yeah, I still yeah. think that you'd get a sort of a split. You get, you know, you get the, yeah, there's people like Josh Hawley and Matt Gates with people <laughs> like, oh, I love this. Satan. Yeah, oh, <laughs> liberals bashing Satan. <laughs> Say not woke enough. So it becomes the political issue of the 1970s. And then you get Jimmy Carter, who is a really mm. green president. Solar panels on the White House kind of stuff. Right, yeah. which then Reagan tears, mm. tears down, obviously. And Carter commissions a landmark report by Jewel Charney, which is the first major report, which predicts for the first time that if the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere doubled, temperatures would rise between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees. And literally there are people 30 years later going, yeah, this is basically, this is mm -hmm, basically right. Mm -hmm. This is when we knew for sure. So you go, okay, right. So this is, this, the science is pretty much there. There's political consensus. Now, there are two other concerns in the 1970s mm -hmm. that are bigger than this and which climate deniers talk about to this day. And I think a lot of people won't remember or won't be aware of. So one of them was ice age theory. Hmm. Right, so between 1940 and 75, the planet actually cooled slightly despite rising emissions. Um, and this is partly because the, the Earth's orbital cycle, it was moving slightly away from the sun, which is the, right, right. the, cause, the cause of ice ages. Partly because air pollution blocks sunlight and cools the Earth. Yes. So when you get these emissions, the carbon warms it, but the dirt cools it. Which, by the way, I did not know before doing this reading. And it was... It felt so counterintuitive to me that you have this kind of almost good versus evil view of the environment. You're yeah. like, well, obviously, that's the pollution stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that makes it worse, right? And it's like, no, actually, there are elements of this that actually make the data quite hard to read. Well, the Clean Air Act actually makes global warming worse. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ. That is an insane <laughs> fact. Not so it was a bad idea, but right, right. You know, it does. Yeah. So a bunch of contrarian climate scientists thought that we were heading towards another ice age. And they really underestimated the warming effect and just looked at these these cooling effects. I was, I, I remember being in GCSE geography class and being told this by our geography teacher. I remember him just deviating right like off the Like as a thing. fact. Yeah, exactly. And just being like, well, look, you know, they have these regular ice ages, you know, the, the Earth's temperature's changing. But so I, I remember this so well. Wow. It's just like, so what? His name was Mr. Hunt. I don't know if I'm libeling him right now. Probably shouldn't name him. But I remember it very, very clearly. Obviously, I didn't know whether it was wrong or right, but I just had this impression of like, you just went way off script on this thing. Well, it was the media got very, very excited and basically mm. overreported it because it was was new. And I've read a lot of books from this period. And you know, and you can read one called Hot House Earth, which holds up, and then one called The Cooling, which does not hold up. <laughs> But people were very, very confused. And there was actually a notorious Radio Times cover headlined The Ice Age Cometh, hmm. promoting a documentary about cooling theory called The Weather Machine, which we will come back to because the guy who made it, Nigel Calder, 
is a really important figure. So cooling theory is not consensus at all. And it basically burns out, except in your science class and your <laughs> geography class, um, but, you know, by the 1980s. But it hmm. still gets brought up as proof that climate scientists are sometimes wrong. Mm. So the, the most notorious denier in Congress, again, we'll come back to him, Senator James Inhofe, Republican, obviously. In 2003, he says, how quickly things change. Fear of the coming ice age is old hat, but fear that man-made greenhouse gases are causing temperatures to rise to harmful levels is in vogue. Hmm. You get the same thing from Tory MPs in the House of Commons. Because when I was at school, the standard orthodoxy was that we were on the threshold of a new ice age. Hmm. Now, if you visit Denier websites, you will find pages and pages of news clippings from the 70s that try to make out that this was the norm. But nine out of 10 scientific papers were about global warming. Right, right. And only one in 10, or didn't take a position, only one in 10 was cooling. And in fact, these were not the same scientists. So Nigel Calder the man behind the weather machine, was a global warming denier for the rest of his life. Yeah. So it's presented as like scientists en masse thought this, but they were wrong. And now they say the opposite. But mm -hmm. They were different scientists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was one case, I think, where the media contributed to a massive misunderstanding that still is still damaging and today. And that will not be the last time that not happens the last in time. this podcast. Not great for the media here. <laughs> Now, the second big worry was overpopulation, building up into the 1970s, obsessed with population control. There's too many people. We're exhausting the soil. We're using up resources. We're huh. polluting the, the air and the water. We're going to run out of food. Which, again, you still hear all the time right now. This is uh, obviously Thomas Malthus's theory rebooted. Thomas Malthus was wrong in his own time, but people went, he'll be right this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was not <laughs> for, for various reasons, largely to do with kind of uh, innovations in, in, in agriculture. I had no idea that neo-Malthusianism was such a big deal in the 70s. Like the Ecologist magazine, you huh. know that? The <laughs> first two issues, the cover stories are about overpopulation. Oh, wow. You know, not pollution, overpopulation. Hmm. Books like The Population Bomb by Paul and Anne Ehrlich, uh, Famine 1975 by <laughs> William and Paul Paddock, <laughs> Uh, this is how the population bomb opens. This was a huge bestseller. The battle to feed all of humanity is over. The famines of the 1970s are upon us, and hundreds of millions of more people are going to starve to death before this decade is out. The children of today's affluent Western societies will inherit a totally different world, a world in which the standards, politics, and economics of their parents will be dead. <laughs> So this is a very bold claim, perhaps too bold. There's another famous book called The Limits to Growth, which sold millions of copies. And mm. as I said, for this reason, we are entering an age of scarcity. The age of abundance is over. We're entering the age of scarcity. Now, because there was so much hype about this and so much hysteria, and it led to lots of kind of very dark policies in places like China and India to limit births. When it didn't happen, it made environmentalists as a whole looked like scaremongers. Mm -hmm. And the, the Ehrlich's nemesis was an economist called Julian Simon, who was a so-called cornucopian. His attitude was the more the merrier. There is no limit to the carrying capacity of the earth. You know, every new birth is a potential world changer. Mm -hmm. Hooray! Mm -hmm. Like very optimistic dude. We never run out of food or oil. And he became known as the doomslayer, <laughs> which, is, which is quite cool. And Ian, you will like this very much. Mm. 
Um, there was a, uh, I'm not going to go into this, but there was a famous bet between Ehrlich and Simon, which uh, Simon won. In 1990, made the news, brought this story back into the news, inspired the rewriting of Marvel's Thanos as a population control maniac. Oh, no way! Yeah, literally yeah. in the wake of this coverage. Um, <laughs> and some readers observed that Thanos sounded like Paul Ehrlich. <laughs> so his, his legacy continues, but perhaps not in the way that he would like. Now, Ehrlich was on the left. Simon was a conservative. Hmm. As important as that was it's a clash between pessimists and optimists. Yes, yes. And this plays out in the 1980 election. So Jimmy Carter is gloomy, austere. I think he turns off the air conditioning in the White House in summer. And, mm. you know, he's very environmentalist, but in a kind of hair shirt way. And Ronald Reagan is all sort of confidence and abundance. Yeah. And that yeah. is who won. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, which is the more compelling message there? Now, this is relevant to, to climate change. Not just because people bring it up as like, well, remember the overpopulation panic? That was wrong, wasn't it? Because Ehrlich named carbon emissions as a consequence of overpopulation. And Simon denied they were a problem because that's a massive obstacle to cornucopianism, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just go, oh, onwards and upwards, the more the merrier, if there is this big problem. And in fact, he saw global warming as just another false alarm. So he said, as soon as one predicted disaster doesn't occur, the doomsayers skip to another. Why don't the doomsayers see that in the aggregate, things are getting better? Hmm. So he is a neoliberal. He's embraced by conservative think tanks and mm. sees green issues as basically anti-growth. But he's also very sort of psychologically compelling. Mm -hmm. He is promising you sunlit uplands. He's yeah. going, you don't have to sacrifice anything. And anyone who tells you you do is a prophet of do. It's a fantastic political message. If you can strap that to your political program, you are going to win. And in fact, you can see it in our own life. I mean, you look at what the election of 2019, and we can talk about, you know, Brexit and Corbyn and all, but Boris Johnson as a disposition versus Jeremy Corbyn as a disposition gives you a very good indication of where popularity will flow. Well, a lot of people are Jeremy Corbyn's defenders. They're going, isn't it wonderful, you know, he rides a bicycle and he lives in this normal house mm -hmm. and he's a vegetarian and all that. And I think they realize that, that to many people that sent the message of like, he's no fun and he wants you to have no fun. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's fair, but actually people do not respond well to Puritans or people who appear mm -hmm. to be Puritans. Mm -hmm. And that was Jimmy Carter's. One of Jimmy Carter's big problems. Right. He just seemed like the party's over guy. <laughs> and Reagan's just like, more party. More party. We're moving to a bigger venue. You know, much more compelling. There's as much booze as you want. Just want to take a minute to thank some of our Patreon supporters who allow us to keep doing what we do. Thank you so much. Noel McAvoy, Michael Gorman, Murali Surya. Get me Rex Kramer and Daniel Van Berzon. Nineteen eighty-eight then comes, and nineteen eighty-eight is a pivotal year. So the creation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change at the UN, uh, the IPCC, and that basically becomes the forum right up into our own time for how we sort of address this stuff on a global scale and assess the validity of the scientific evidence for it. You also have James Hansen, the climate modeler, who makes a significant change. Until now, it's like, well, look, this is a process that can happen. Carbon can warm the atmosphere. His point is to say, no, 
it is already happening now. Mm. And people are very primed for hearing it because that year is incredibly hot. It's the hottest and driest year in US history. You've got this drought that's affecting 40% of the country. Crops are failing, livestock dying, food prices are rising. So people are kind of primed for the message for someone to sit in Congress and go like, we're doing it now. It's happening Did now. you know that the chair of the committee mm. uh, scheduled it for the hearing for what was meant to be the hottest day of the year and turned off the aircon. Oh, shit. They did it on purpose. Yeah, so people were sweltering oh, in the room. Oh, my God, that's genius. Because they'd had one in November. Uh-huh. And it didn't, get any, bullshit. didn't get any attention. <laughs> Very clever. Oh, man, humans are so, I mean, to point out, weather, so easy. To weather is not the same as climate. I just <laughs> want to point this out. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But, still. But, but you know what? But it does make a difference. And quite often when reading this history, you'd find like it was a particularly hot summer when these developments were taking place. You think back to, to last summer for us, I felt like during that period where you're just hitting 40 degrees, you know, in the UK, mm. people are kind of, pr- when it, the weather feels different on your skin, yeah. they're kind of primed for like, no, hang on a minute, something unusual is It's happening. like I'm saying about the Santa Barbara oil spill. It's an image. Yes, exactly. It's a physical feeling. Yeah. It's, it's not data. It's not just data. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a real sense of hope at this point. I mean, Margaret Thatcher says, humanity has unwittingly begun a massive experiment on the system of the planet itself. And she opens the Hadley Center for Climate Prediction and Research at the Met Office. Pioneering, Pioneering global warming. stuff, yeah. I still am Hats fighting. off to Nixon, hats off to Thatcher. <laughs> just, I just cannot, this podcast cannot turn into the Aren't Reagan, Nixon and Thatcher great podcast? Yeah, we've got to, we've got to somehow stop the trend. So so you actually have a real sense of sort of, of hope about it. Vice President George Bush says he'll counter the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. There is this continued sense of sort of cross-party support. Mm. And then the Marshall Institute comes up. And their first report is global warming. What does the science tell us? And they take it everywhere. This is your theory that you mentioned earlier about the sun. Basically, the, you know, the, 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 the real cause effect is the sun. They do this by taking Hansen's work and just sort of taking one graph out of six and completely misrepresenting it. I mean, it's actually very cynical. There is no way to do it as a, as a failed bit of science. It is pure cynicism. But they take it absolutely everywhere. They give a briefing to the Office of Cabinet Affairs, the Office of Policy Development, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Office of Management and Budget. They're all over Washington. And of course, they all have highly creditable careers in a different area of science. Mostly physicists. Mostly physicists, right. And so for many politicians, you're just like, well, these are just super creditable guys, you know? I mean, the quotes, take this from one member of the, of the Cabinet Affairs Office. I was impressed with the report. Everyone has read it. Everyone takes it seriously. Another said, it is well worth listening to. They are eminent scientists. I was impressed. So they're really very, very effective. But the stuff that they're putting out there has the trappings of science, has the graphs, it has the charts, it has the references. A lot of this reminded me of the conspiracy theory oh, thing absolutely. of like, chuck it full of references. It looks like a, a serious piece of work. But it's not subject to peer review. You know, it is not a piece of science that's creditable in the same way as the stuff that they are criticizing. Because it's not, it's not a scientific argument. It is a political argument and it is a media argument. And politicians and journalists, for the most part, are not very up on science. Disgracefully, some of the worst characters in this story were like the New York Times science editor. (laughs) So really, really no excuse there. But a lot of time they're targeting people that don't really get it, but they they want to hear it's not a problem. Yeah. So Forbes runs a cover story called The Global Warming Panic. Mm. in 1989 mm. and and it like the pushback is so quick 
You go like Hanson in 88, Thatcher in 88, and then in 89, there's this concerted effort and it's not, you know, it's sort of follow the money and who funds you and whatever. It can yeah, sound yeah. a little, little conspiratorial, but you've got all of these think tanks taking <laughs> money from ExxonMobil, the American Petroleum Institute, like, and they're setting up what reminded me of like uh, Communist Party front organizations mm -hmm. where they just give it like a friendly, friendly name. So they set up the Information Council on the Environment. <laughs> who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who doesn't like information? Uh, a magazine called the World Climate Review. Yeah. Again, great, great. Sounds good. We can learn about the climate. They're so disingenuous, these people. And in the UK, sorry, I'm just going to skip forward here because this made me laugh. The Global Warming Policy Foundation <laughs> uh, involving people like Nigel Lawson. Yes, uh, who will come recently, to in a moment. Steve Baker and Lord Frost. Can you guess the address of the Global Warming Policy I Foundation? I might just be able to take a punt at it. Can you guess the London street address? I'm going to have to press, <laughs> I'm going to have to press you for a, actually a house number here, not just the street. No, no, no. Go, go. It's 55 Tufton Street. Oh, you've fucking blown my mind. That's incredible. <laughs> so that's where they're uh, thinking about global warming policy. <laughs> Very hard. They're doing great research in that place. The second part of this attack is in 1992. And a man called Ben Santos from the Programme of Climate Model Diagnosis and Intercomparison at Lawrence Livermore National uh, Laboratory. He did his PhD at the University of East Anglia, which becomes quite an important part of the story. And at this point, it's slightly different. It's not just whether climate change is detectable. That was what was being achieved in 1988. It's whether it's attributable. Right. Whether you can find the human fingerprint. And he's, and Sandra is basically the sort of, well, really, the, the guy that invents really this branch of science. It's detection and attribution studies. You do it in various ways. You're sort of looking at vertical variation of temperature. If it's coming from the sun, then surely it should be hotter on the outside of the atmosphere rather than the inner atmosphere. If it's coming, you know, from carbon, it should be hotter from down below, cooler up above, that kind of thing. And he's asked to, to be the convening author for Chapter 8 of the second IPCC assessment, which is on detection of climate change and attribution of causes. In other words, the most politically volatile, controversial controversial parks. It's about, is this man-made? Is this our responsibility? Does it have a human fingerprint to it? The IPCC is an incredibly weird process. I mean, you sort of, the scientists work, they, they write the stuff, it's extensively peer-reviewed with other scientists, with other experts. Then they go off to these sort of summits, these negotiations, and you have all of the country's delegations laid out in front of them with the chair in the middle and the scientists for each chapter behind. And they basically just flash up each of the sentences in turn and have a debate. And you can object as a country or not. Right. So the peer review then shifts from science to kind of politics, right? You know, trying to keep countries on board. It's usually these really contorted debates about the word substantial or the word discerning or the word specific, trying to put it in a way that you can keep the Saudis on board, keep the Chinese on board. Well, you know the line that keeps coming up from the 1995 IPCC report mm -hmm. that got mm -hmm. deniers absolutely outraged, right? This was meant to be this kind of melodramatic claim. And this is what happens when it's gone through that process. The balance of evidence suggests that there is a discernible human influence on global climate. Yeah, discernible. Yeah. Like, could not be blander. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. yet, even that is like <laughs> an outrageous, <laughs> apocalyptic hysteria. <laughs> So look, there's a bunch of changes that come from that process, from the scientific peer review process. And then finally, at the end, he's asked Santa, in terms of that chapter, 
uh, for the IPCC assessment. He's asked to remove the summary statement at the end of the chapter. All of the chapters in that assessment have a summary statement at the beginning, and they didn't have one at the end, apart from his chapter. So he was like, okay, fine. So I'll keep the one at the beginning. I'll get rid of it. It's extremely banal, you know, very pedestrian and uninteresting. But it becomes the basis of this sustained attack on him personally mm. and on climate science in general. So he goes to present his findings at Capitol Hill. He's attacked by William O'Keefe of the American Petroleum Institute and Donald Perlman, a lobbyist, for, quote, secretly altering the IPCC report, suppressing dissent by other scientists and eliminating references to scientific uncertainties. That meeting ends with Perlman getting up and shouting directly in his face, going, who made these changes to the chapter? Who authorized these changes? Why were they made? This attack then goes on in the pages of the national press, predominantly through the Institute. So you get Fred Seitz in 1996. He writes a letter that's published in the Wall Street Journal accusing Santa of fraud, basically. He says, and listen to how respectable he manages to make himself sound by virtue of his background in physics. Mm. In my more than 60 years as a member of the American scientific community, including my services as president of the National Academy of Science and the American Physical Society, I have never witnessed a more disturbing corruption of the peer review process than the events which led to the IPCC report. Few of the changes made are merely cosmetic. Nearly all work to remove hints of the scepticism with which many scientists regard claims that human activity having a major impact on climate. Now, imagine that you're reading the Wall Street Journal mm. or the Washington Post, where they also churned out this guff. You're just going to be like, A, super respectable scientist, and B, what's the story he's telling? It's not this complex stuff about, oh, variable temperatures, uh, you know, different rates and the data. It's just basically going like, they did a stitch up, they removed stuff there because they've got a political agenda. And that's a very vivid story. It's a really compelling story. It's a very easily understandable story. And it was one that the press proved unbelievably vulnerable to taking on. Now, you mentioned Fred Seitz there, who is one of the figures that keeps coming up in this, yeah. this story. In fact, there's, there's really very few names. Obviously, some people like Seitz die, but then they're replaced by other ones. And it's, well, he's replaced by another Seitz, his cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Russell just writes all the same shit. Yeah. yeah. So what's really striking is so the 90s is the decade that, of climate denial really takes off. Uh, also, many good things about the 90s, but not this. <laughs> and what is amazing, and I think this really comes across in a book called Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes yeah, and absolutely Eric brilliant Conway. Book. Just incredible. It's almost like a true crime. Book. Yeah, 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 it's fantastic. So they're serial deniers. So they denied nuclear winter theory. They denied that secondhand smoke caused cancer. They denied that CFCs depleted the ozone layer, even after there had been a successful international treaty to ban CFCs. <laughs> they denied that acid rain was a problem, something that had been first been observed in the 1840s. <laughs> they denied that DDT was dangerous. In fact, some of them blamed Rachel Carson for killing millions of people because DDT was effective against malaria. In fact, actually, mosquitoes had developed a resistance against it long before it was banned. But one conservative writer, Thomas Sal, wrote, there has not been a mass murderer executed in the past half century who has been responsible for as many deaths of human beings as the sainted Rachel Carson. Oh, Jesus. It's They're literally going back 30 years to, to attack the sort of the mother of the environmental movement. Right, right. So denial seems to be... It's like a conspiracy theory. If you believe one conspiracy theory, I'm like, okay, why do you believe that? If you believe a bunch, which they always do, mm. you go, oh, that's your propensity, right? So what we're talking about here is a psychological, whatever, political tendency. 
And I just wanted to quickly break down the, the motives and see if you yeah, agree yeah, with what yeah. I found here. One is, is the simplest, but actually I think the least revealing is they were taking money from oil and tobacco and so on. Yes, right? It's no, true, but... It is, no, and it's not revealing, but the thing is, reading this, I was constantly reminded because I, I tend to discount... Because it's such a classic sort of lefty online, you know, follow the money and, yeah, yeah. oh, you know, Iraq was a war over oil. And then you're just like, oh, it's quite complex and personalities and incentives and all this stuff. And I think in this story, more than any I've come across recently, the foundation is the fucking money. Yeah. Right. You know, that lots of other stuff flows from it and it, and it is more complex than that. But ultimately, there is a story here of vested interest funding a political campaign that is intended to dismantle science and access against the public interest. That is the core, the beating heart of what goes on here. So two, they're Cold War hawks who thought that regulation was basically yes. communism and yeah. still had all these grudges <laughs> against uh, environmentalists and scientists for not being uh, enthusiastic enough about nuclear weapons. Three, they're free market fundamentalists. Yeah. And this is crucial. Patrick Michaels, editor of the World Climate Review, later called Obama's plans to uh, cut emissions on which the uh, the industry spent half a billion dollars to mm. thwart. Uh, he called it Obamianism. So that, that sort of shows you where he's coming from. <laughs> Four, they're, they're technophiles who felt they were in a war against Luddites, against these, these bloody hippies who just didn't like technology. Mm. And five, they were optimists who accused environmentalists of crying wolf and, and prophesying doom. They wanted the world to be, uh, you know, they wanted the world to be wonderful, the, the, almost the Reagan instinct. Yeah, yeah. And then six, and I know this is really understated when you're going, why do people behave like this on the right particularly? Mm. It's like resentment and ego. Is that sites felt ostracized by scientists during the 60s and 70s. Yes. He supported the Vietnam War. And he basically reminds me of people who accuse just wokeness of everything. This is from Oreskes and Conway. Sites justified his increasing social and intellectual isolation by blaming others. American science had become rigid, he insisted. His colleagues mm. dogmatic and closed-minded. Mm. Now, isn't that exactly what academics say about kind of woke universities now? Yes, yes. No, you see the exact process. It's basically like I keep on getting attacked on Twitter by you know young lefties. Therefore, there is this great woke conspiracy, the blah, blah, blah. These are all very, very good, by the way, because I think you see the change. It's it's kind of a process of radicalization. Like a lot of this research reminded me of the episode we did on neoliberalism and the episode on conspiracy theory. Yeah. Because you have this sort of overarching conspiracy theory, which is that the, the left are kind of getting into the scientific institutions. They've taken over science and they're using it to dismantle capitalism. And institutional it, capture, they say Institutional now, right? capture, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically the same stuff that's talked about through cultural Marxism now is the classic sort of term. And then you have this this the sort of neoliberal thought defect of slippery slope. Everything is a slippery slope towards full-on socialist control. And this is the Hayek stuff. I mean, it's you know, mm. you wouldn't call this conspiracy. It's just that I think it's a defect of, of thinking. So every time they come across, oh, well, we actually want to put a warning on a cigarette packet now. <laughs> you're like, you can't, because that's how Stalin starts. And you're just like, I'm not so sure that that is how Stalin starts, actually. So there's this real um, sort of combination of things. And then in the background, you see that sense of personality, like that Sykes thing, I think it's spot on. He's there, he's, he's hated on war fronts, especially, as you say, on Vietnam. But he gets this funding from Reynolds Cigarettes, right? Yeah. So that's good financially. That helps him. That's your point one on your thing. But I think then there's a social element to that, right? So he's like, well, actually, 
I much prefer these tobacco executives to hang out with these guys who agree with all my shit on Star Wars or Vietnam than I do with my fellow academics who are much more liberally inclined, you know, um, who have a, a very different sort of cultural and social and political view. So suddenly all of this stuff, the funding, the politics, the conspiratorial mindset, the social arrangements all starts to point in a given direction. Well, this is, so when people ask now, does, does someone does so-and-so believe this stuff or are they just, mm. is it just a grift? Are they just, mm. you know, getting money from... And it's 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 all of these things together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of these things together. And this is another good moment to thank our lovely Patreon backers, who are, of course, deeply intelligent and extremely beautiful people, merely by virtue of the fact that they became Patreon backers. Thanks in particular this week to Leah Michaels, Polly Eccleston, <laughs> I've been told to say it this way, Christian fucking Kent, Alan Boydell, and Chris Stepanek. Okay, so we've done the motives of the deniers. And in part two, we're going to talk more about their methods. And I have uh, dug deep <laughs> into, uh, into their works, nonfiction mm. and fiction, um, to see how they put the case for denial. Thanks for staying with us. If you want to support us, we would like you to go and press like and subscribe and all the other things that you're supposed to do with podcasts that you want to encourage other people to listen to. Go out, tell your friends, tell your family. Find the people that would be least receptive to our ideas and our general approach to life and use this as a kind of psychological punishment, really, for all the ways that they've let you down in your own life. And if you want to see the reading list for the research that we use for this episode, just go click on the show notes. And this is a reminder of our live show on the 11th of July at 21 Soho. Be there or, frankly, be rather ill-informed and unamused. In the meantime, we will see you right here, same place, same time, next week. Thanks, guys. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.